Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, folks. This is Al Martin. Welcome to Making Data Simple. Welcome back. If you're new, we appreciate you being here. This is where we talk about everything, tech, modernizing your data and AI estate, whatever comes up in the topic list. Today, I have Paul Z, as I affectionately refer to him as, Paul Zakopoulos. He's a vice president of Big Data Cognitive Systems. I think this is your third time you've been on the show, something like that? I second or third. All I can say is I was not voted off the island. So <laughs> you're, it's like I, I got a lot of jackets I have to give out. You know, on Saturday Night Live, I think if you hit five, you get jackets. I don't know what mine's going to be, but I got to start doing that. But Paul has written uh, a ton of books. In fact, we'll talk about a recent book that he's written. He's a professional and award-winning uh, speaker and author. I bring Paul on because we talk about anything and everything. When I say that, I mean anything and everything from big data to leadership. We'll probably spend a lot of time on the latter. In fact, the dangerous thing about this is there's no agenda today. So perhaps it's a dud, but it won't be that way because I'll take my chances with Paul any day of the week. Let's jump right in. Paul, how you been? You been good? Yeah, I've been good. You know, I uh, I would like to say I, I have champagne and first world problems because I have my <laughs> health and uh, uh, everyone listening. I mean, this is challenging times during COVID. We were talking about it last week and just you know, oh, I miss this. Oh, I wish I could do that. Or this so nurtured my soul. I think that this is a a time for appreciation for health as wealth. And uh, if you're healthy, then you're doing better than some others. And then from there, we can start to rank, you know, our ills and wills and, and complaints. But generally, I got my health. So I have wealth and I'm doing well. You have the right mentality. In fact, it's funny that you say first world problems, because if I complain about something, my wife often throws that back at me. Hey, first world problem. I mean, we got so many, we got presidential stuff. We got yeah. social things. We got a pandemic. Yeah, I'm empathetic to anybody out there that's suffering, particularly health wise. But, you know, when I complain, yeah, it's first world problems, just just like you. Uh, so I'm appreciative of what we have. And I don't know about you, Al. I know for me, and I don't know about the listeners either, I travel a lot. Like I probably travel two or three days a week, talk yes. to your clients or stuff like that. So I haven't traveled since uh, COVID lockdown hit, we were actually in the mountains in Utah and in Vegas in March. So when I got home, I was like, this is a tremendous time for, you know, my whole relationship was built uh, with my wife of 20 years of marriage, pretty much, who was built on me being away uh, two or three days a week. So I was like, well, I'll have a lot of time with my wife and with my kid. And while that's been true, I think I found that my wife longs for me to travel again. In other words... <laughs> In other words, I, 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 I resemble that remark as well. <laughs> I'm sure many people do. I was like, oh, my God, my wife must be so excited. But what I think I've learned is I'm not nearly as charming to her as I thought I once was. So uh, <laughs> I felt like, you know, when we first started this, it was great. You know, it was like, all right, I need this gap. I've been traveling, you know, like you nonstop, nonstop. I mean, I'm gone every week, essentially. And this gave me, a, you know, a, an opportunity to stay home. Be re be acquainted with my wife <laughs> and kids because they're back home and they were supposed to be traveling and doing all kinds of stuff themselves. They're back at school, even though they're taking classes virtually, uh, which is interesting because I'm paying for them to take classes virtually away. That's kind of startling. But having said that, you know, now I'm like, I don't know. Working from home took a while to get used to. It's been a struggle for me. You know, in turn, I got to have discipline. Otherwise, I'll come down here in my office. I started like, Today, honestly, I started at 5.30, 
and I won't come up until seven if you let it happen. I think you need structure in there. I think one of the things you'd have to watch out for uh, that I've been talking a lot in this, I have this talk I've been doing called virtual collaborator spinner or winner. And in there, I, I hit on some of the health uh, goals. And then the reminders that get out and take a walk or, or take a call uh, on a walk and, you know, don't apologize for some background noise. Some people call it the new normal. I call it the new abnormal, but you've got to set some timers so that you stand, maybe a stand up, sit down desk. You know, I saw one at Costco the other day for 200 bucks will change your health uh, because sitting down all day, you're right. You can get trapped into one too many meetings, one too many slacks and emails and suddenly 10 hours goes by and you're trying to figure out how come you haven't moved outside of vicinity of four square feet. <laughs> oh, I've got the, I've been standing up for some time. I go up and down and I've got a stand up desk. Uh, I would highly recommend that by the way. But when I started, I was really, really disciplined, kind of keeping to my previous discipline, you know, when we were traveling, then it got bad for a bit, I have to admit, and it just became work, 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 you know, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the same spot. And now I'm getting better again. I mean, it kind of went down and I said, what am I doing? I've got to have that discipline. And you got to, at least for me, I got to put it in there. I got to, I got to time box it and say, all right, this is when I'm taking a break. So I lift up and, and go head someplace. It's a crazy world right now. We get, we've got a lot of challenges. So there's not enough hours in the day to get the things you need to get done. If, if you look at it from that perspective, you, you've got to prioritize. Anyway, I know you're the same way. You got it. I know this is your third time. Why don't we take a pause for a second? You kind of give a little bit of your experience in case. I would encourage anybody that's listening to go back, listen to Paul in previous podcasts. But if you could give a little bit of your experience, uh, I'd appreciate that. I thought kind of an interesting case, I guess. I don't know. So I started IBM about 26 years ago. Never taken a computer course in my life. I think it speaks to the terrific opportunity uh, when you're privileged to work at IBM. I feel it a privilege. I feel IBM is privileged to have me work there. I could choose to work in many places with my skills now, and I feel privileged to work there. And that seems to be a pretty good relationship. But I was able to grow my technical depth, my business depth, all that at IBM. I can't think of another company that gives opportunities for employees to grow both professionally, but personally. So I started and was in data, we call it cloud and cognitive at IBM now for probably 23 years. And in there, obviously I focused on database Hadoop. During that time, I was in the lab, went to offering management, then tech sales. I became an executive there. I ran tech sales for all uh, cloud and cognitive as it's known now. I made a move over to the systems or uh, infrastructure services, as we call it, IBM now, which is uh, kind of a hardware and software division. I did that as AI started to take off. So I made this movement, Al, from data and then in database. And then I went into Hadoop for big data. Then I kind of moved to data science and then pivoted to AI. And I really wanted to learn how infrastructure matters in terms of AI originally, if you think about GPU training, and now optimizing inferencing or scoring of the algorithms. Well, where did storage play a role in a journey to AI? And then now with hybrid cloud, and you look at some of the characteristics of modernization of applications, I think it matters more. So I kind of rounded out my skills, if you will, around software, hardware, learned a lot along the way, and that's kind of me. And I always try to share my knowledge socially, either through social channels or my writing, or terrific podcasts like this one. Thank you for that. You've got that rounded experience now with software, hardware. 
Do you still consider yourself a software person or you say, no, nah, not anymore? Or are you both? You know what I think I am? I'm a solutions person. So okay. I don't just speak to one component of a solution. At the end of the day, if you think about a terrific tasting recipe or a soup, it's a whole bunch of things from broth to the vegetables to the meat inside it. And so it was probably the best move I've made ever because it actually upped my ability to talk about the two or three things that are top of mind of customers today. And those top of mind things are definitely AI and what does that journey look like? Modernization, or some people will call it hybrid cloud, but we'll call it modernization of the apps. And COVID has put a heck of a lot of pressure on modernization for apps. We've had winners and losers. People in the outhouse went to the penthouse. People who arrived, thrived, or survived, right? And, and that kind of stuff. And then also the third area where clients are really talking about is around security. And with insecurity, I'll add in explainability, uh, and that will capture some of the ethics and explainability of AI. Just to give you a prop here, you've got a new AI ladder book. I think you co-wrote it with Rob Thomas, who is an SVP here at uh, IBM. It's available on O'Reilly Learning Platform. Is a lot of what you speak of outlined in that book? Yeah. If you wouldn't mind telling us about it, that'd be great. Yeah, Al, I can tell you, if you haven't read it yet, you're only cheating yourself. That's all I can say. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, listen, a lot of what I just talked about is absolutely in there. Of course, this was focused on AI, and indeed, AI is a piece of a modernized app, but other parts of modernization in your app are going to be around containerization, orchestration. How are we able to provide you know, updates and be agile and those kinds of things? But specifically in that book, really made it business book, right? It's for business practitioners as opposed to I'm an AI practitioner, right? So I'm not going to go and, and teach you hyperparameter tuning or how to do backpropagation or calculate parameters. That's not what that book was about. For those topics, there's plenty of stuff out there. If you do a, a Google search on Adrian Rosebrock or Adam Getchy, great, great stuff out there and lots of other stuff. This book really introduced you to AI, and it gave you a model or a journey. We call it the AI ladder, obviously, and it kind of these rungs of a ladder that you climb. So you collect your data, you need to organize your data, analyze that data, and then infuse it throughout the enterprise. And the reason why I kind of feel like I have you know a grander aperture to advise clients on solutions or in my writing is because it's not just about the software. If you think about climbing a ladder at your house, Al, if you're going to go up to the second floor and clean out your ease troughs now that it's fall, and imagine climbing an old rickety ladder. That'd be kind of scary when you get to that second floor to the very top of a high roof. But now imagine if someone had their foot on the base of that ladder and held it firm for you. You could climb higher, faster, and with more confidence. So that's kind of the infrastructure part. So we really talk about... What are the practices in a journey to AI? What does it mean as a business leader? So you have to understand the nuances of AI, but to understand the journey, where to start, and then how to infuse it and how to get culture buy-in. I think I'll end my little ditty on this area in that book as you have culture until you don't. And the transformation around AI is a cultural one before it is in anything else. And uh, we talk about those types of things and other obstacles you'll face in the book, how to manage them, how to build data science teams, 
and how to begin and accelerate your journey to AI. What do you mean by until you don't? Well, if you think about it, right, everyone will come around and talk about, oh, we're doing analytics or, oh, we're going to modernize. And then all of a sudden, maybe it's a new leader, a new agenda, or there's a new bump in the road. For example, a sales plummet because of COVID and you back off something, right? This culture of wanting to infuse analytics is everywhere so long as it is in the leadership's aperture, in their voices, and in their actions, And it's not enough as a leader. And look, I'll give this leadership advice from leading very large teams. Forget about even transforming to AI, just in general leadership. You have to demonstrate from the very top, whether you're changing a culture around bullying or inclusion uh, and diversity, or whether you're changing a culture around AI, every action that you do as a leader and decisions you make have to emulate what your, your ethos will be. And when that stops, no matter for what reason, a change in leadership, uh, challenges in the business, maybe you've got eight things you're trying to look at, right? I always tell people, prioritize the top three, because if I gave you a list of everything you had to do, you'd give me 100 things. If you're not pushing those things, right, then they're not going to flow down all the way down the organization to the practitioners in the field. Makes sense. But here's a question. What about systems, GPUs? Those are all part of the story, are they not? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting, um, and I think we're going to see a pivot. So GPUs are about uh, accelerating the training times. That's where you'll see them used a lot right now, if you will, around AI, because everybody's talking about building algorithms out. So, okay, there's a big rush to build algorithms. And these GPUs are exceptional in that they process the types of math, like matrix multiplication, that... Uh, neural networks use when they train themselves and backpropagate. And that's why things go so much. And so there's been a lot of hype and focus on that. There's an old uh, hockey saying by Wayne Gretzky in Canada that says, uh, don't go where the puck is, but to where the puck is going to be. I believe what you're going to see in the next couple of years is this transition of companies who define themselves or talk about algorithms in the single digits, perhaps a dozen if you're lucky algorithms that get updated every so many months and so on and so forth into environments that are dominated by thousands of algorithms. And you'll see this pivot where technology is helping humans run a business, where we'll see technology will assist the humans as they kind of guide the technology that runs the business. And so as you go into these thousands of algorithms that are going to be running and we evolve from the internet of things, to the internet of everything, to the intelligence of everything, which is AI on edge computing, the discussion points will be around inference, which is scoring those algorithms, right? So everyone's building them, want to build them faster. That's a GPU conversation. But scoring the algorithms when they're running all these businesses is going to be a different conversation. Maybe that will be GPU or some kind of other ASIC like a tensor processing unit that you've seen from Google. At IBM, we've announced our Power 10, and we're doing some incredible uh, on-chip mathematic engineering to help inferencing. So it'll be very interesting in that area for sure. So GPUs are there, but there's another chapter ahead, and that's when AI actually helps the business. If I'm listening right now and I'm looking to accelerate my training time, should I be thinking leveraging cloud around GPUs? Should I be thinking... Uh, systems in-house that can do that better than cloud? I mean, what should I be thinking? Where should I be going with this? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is, it always depends. Any vendor that says, this is a solution, what was your question? You're <laughs> the wrong vendor. Even a rep from a reputable vendor, like not all reps are the same. It's going to be depending on, on what you're doing, right? Indeed, if I look at the cost of spinning up compute with GPU, how quickly I can get that going. These are one of the greatest things about cloud, but that's why we call this hybrid cloud, right? And hybrid cloud should be about putting it in the best position, be it the data on data gravity or be it the infrastructure because of governance, because of speed or because of cost. So I'll give you kind of two examples, Al. One would be if I was actually training and scoring maybe a um, out of spec uh, quality assurance on a manufacturing line, and I was looking at tens of thousands of pictures a day for quality inspection, you probably wouldn't want to run that on the cloud. It would be enormously expensive. Uh, another example would be quantum computing. Think about how I would use quantum computing today. I would build something on a classical computer that I would send to the cloud. IBM fronts quantum into the cloud. Then you could tap in to this quantum computer to process some of the discovery. Say you're doing some compound discovery and trying to understand how they react and then come back down to your classical computer. So you would be using in both ways. So those are two examples where I'm executing uh, in the cloud or I could be executing on premise. So it always comes down to the use case, Al, but there's no question when you're prototyping something, I'll spin that up very quickly in the cloud. And there's no question that cloud is appropriate for all kinds of, of applications uh, to run public or private, what I want you to remember. Cloud is a capability, not a destination. Like it. Very good. Uh, we will put that book in the show notes for everybody to take reference of. And I would have been disappointed had Paul Z, the Canadian, not said something about hockey. For some reason, all Canadians have to mention hockey in every conversation they have. That's good. All right. So what else are you working on now, man? We're just about to announce your, your viewers will hear this first. I think you're just about to hear a hybrid cloud book that I'll be working on. So expect to hear some details about that, but hint, hint about 90% there. So a hybrid cloud book. A lot of focus has been now for me from AI into hybrid cloud. And I think that hybrid cloud is a big, big area where not only I think IBM has it right and will kind of definitely transform the future of where companies and investments will come. But it's an opportunity to learn all about in that area. So I've been spending a lot of time on hybrid clouds. So looking at Dockers and Kubernetes and orchestration and some Red Hat OpenShift container platform. So a lot of time on that. I spent a lot of time actually on how to lead during COVID and how to teach other teams kind of some engagement tricks or even different tips in working. Maybe that'll be another podcast, but here are all kinds of tips and tricks I've learned along the way to make you more efficient. And this is going to help you uh, kind of during the COVID area. So those have been uh, two big, big areas. You've written over like 20 books. How do you do it? How do you find that time? How do you make that time? Is there a technique you use like yeah. every morning from five to noon, right? I mean, how are you doing it? So I'll, I'll tell you, I have this mantra when I write a book. One of the most important things I do is I prioritize my skills. If I go and give someone 10 things to do and I don't create a priority around them, everything's going to be about equal or the half the stuff won't get done. Maybe all of it won't get done. Can't focus on 10 things. Can't have 10 balls in the air. So I have employees who come to me and mentor at IBM and they're like, 
oh, my skills are falling behind or this. I go, you have to make time in your calendar for your skills. And for me, when I write, that's really my skills because I'm putting together storylines and thoughts and research. And I truly believe I could watch a video on Kubernetes, but when I start to learn it and I take some certification, that gets me even smarter. But once I put it to paper to try to teach others, right? When one person teaches, two people learn. So that's my skills time. But I definitely block, I would say, two hours a day for skills. And I think it's one of the most important ingredients any IBMer, any non-IBMer, any anyone even outside of IT could do for themselves. Learning never ends for me and, and that's it. So I guess that's where I find the time. And then I have a bunch of tricks and techniques that I use uh, to make things more efficient. So if I build a sales presentation, I'm actually fully scripting it in my PowerPoint, even if it's for a client, because it helps me generate the storyline and, and put it down and review it. And then when I go to create a book, you can imagine if I had a thousand slides fully scripted, then I have this kind of modular approach. Almost think about like uh, building an application with a bunch of APIs and I start pulling it together and then I write from there. And listen, I can't lie to you. It's a lot of hard work. It doesn't pay well. It doesn't pay at all, actually. <laughs> um, and, and in the middle of every book, you're like, why am I doing this again? Every single time. So it is a lot of hard work. It's a lot of personal sacrifice, but it's also making a commitment to learning. And the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I'm with you on the books. And look, I'm always 100% behind what you're saying. I'm always talking continuous learning. And the feedback I get from my team is, which I really loathe. I mean, I get really upset when somebody says they don't have time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have time. I mean, you got to make time. And this isn't IBM statement. It's just a personal development statement. If you're not taking 20%, you're getting behind. You're going to be on the B team. You can't be on the A team if you're not taking the time. You take time to eat so you can find a way to take time to, to learn. Al, and I would agree with exactly what you're saying, right? So let's talk a little bit about time management then. We started the podcast with challenges we're facing with COVID and the fact that, you know, I got to continue to reinvent myself, by example. I'm pretty good at time management. And because of this newfound world we find ourselves in, you know, it's thrown some of my traditional habits aside and I've had to bring them back and really be purposeful in practice. I mean, I think it's a practice, actually. It's like anything. It's like baseball. You got to get good at it. You got to practice. Well, you got to practice time management. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, you're looking at maybe even doing a book around leadership around COVID, et cetera. I know you tweet a lot. So give us some tips that you use to actually to do what you just said. So one is, I'll tell you, as a leader, is to engage my team, right? We have virtual pizza lunches. We went and ordered a pizza as a surprise to uh, 60 people on our team. And I think about 53 of them, we got pizzas to their house, which was, a, and we had this big event. It just kind of feel more part of a team. It was a surprise when you did that? Yeah. They yeah. didn't know it was coming? No, we just booked a meeting. And I got to tell you, uh, I was like, oh, I'll just do it. it. It took about four hours for me to order all those pizzas. Yeah, I had somebody else on my team that did the same. I was kind of envious. It's surprising that you did it as well. They said the same thing. It took like four hours. They had like Uber Eats yeah. deliver a bunch of food at that time. And they said it worked for the most part, but it was fun anyway. Yeah, it was way harder than you thought. And then uh, <laughs> and what we did is we ran a Slack poll on what's the greatest pizza. And we gave some ideas and I let you vote. And then, of course, some people have to go off the rails. We've been trying to engage every month with the team. We get everyone on. We had a big Halloween party. 
costumed up with a DJ last time. We have virtual bingo. I think what you have to think about in the virtual world, and I'll link this back to if you're talking to customers, is that attention span is greatly reduced in the virtual world. Like it's so much different if you and I are face to face. And I guess I tell you this, I've sat in a presentation and I've been bored to death. I've been bored to death by someone just on stage talking. I've been bored to death by someone doing a whiteboard. So engagement gets killed and you have to be 10 times more interesting in the COVID era than you did before. And you should keep that in mind when you engage with clients. So there's kind of different things you're gonna wanna do there. So you're engaging your team, sure. I'd say the number one thing that will kill engagement more than anything, and you know, I have a list of 10 things. Maybe I should start blogging about them. But one of them, without question, is technology. Uh, and I've seen it. I've been on these calls and someone's VoIP goes out and they're on a, a VoIP connected call and they don't know how to switch that to a POTS, a plain old telephone service line, or the, the internet isn't fast enough. So you got to have your technology game squared up. And the number one thing I think you can do if you're working from home right now, and it worked for me like a charm, is get a mesh network. Al, I'm going to tell you, I was running Wi-Fi in the house like, like lots of people. I get kicked into different rooms because my daughter's at home doing school as well. And if you're sitting right beside my router at 5 gigahertz, you're going to pull in 250 uh, megabits per second, right? Which is pretty good speed. The problem with 5 gigahertz is it goes... I don't know, 50 feet, barely around a corner. And then you got to jump to 2.4 gigahertz. And then you're going to drop down to six, if at best. If you want to have a very strong WebEx experience with audio and video, you probably need about 15. Probably need about six to seven for Netflix, but you probably need about 15. You can test uh, where you are. Go to fast.com and go figure it out. Go beside your router and then go to the furthest place from your house. So then I started looking at, well, how do I get better uh, network reception and that kind of stuff? And, and Al, I feel like for a technology guy, I was behind the game here. About three months ago, I put in a mesh network. I was and I wondering. got 110 megabits a second from the worst part of my house. That was a godsend. So that's where you should start right there. Make sure you got the backbone to do the work you want to do. I did absolutely the same thing. I got a mesh network. It's made all the difference in the yeah. world. Back to to working smarter here. I was reading the other day that on average, we're all saving 27 minutes uh, on our commute, yet still the number one issue is we don't have enough time. So we just replaced it with something else. So your words ring true in terms of prioritization. You know, I prioritize around three goals a day. Actually, I call them commitments that I try to get done. And then I plan. I don't know if you do this, but I, I time box. You know, I time box based on like five categories, personal health, Clients, networking. Uh, third one is like what I call job hacking. That's deep thinking, next actions. Fourth is teaming. And fifth is like admin email. Now, some of that's necessary, but those are in priority order just because uh, like the admins at the, at the last of the list, I hate email. It's the pain of my existence. And then I time box those to make sure I have the right priorities within those areas. You do much of the same or do something different? kind of the same. We all have our different techniques, but I, I think what you're hitting on is something that I tell people all the time. And that days are one the night before, you know, that evening before the next day, I want to go and write down what are two or three things that would make this a good day. This was a trick taught to me by Marty Wahlberger, uh, who was a uh, executive around development for information management when it was called that about a half a decade ago. And he's like, Paul, one to three things. That if you look back on that day, 
You said you did something you wanted to do. It makes all the difference in your attitude and it makes all the difference in how you feel about what you're doing. Even when you're doing parts of work, look at, I tell all my employees, you got to hate 20% of your job, right? You got to hate 20% about it. It's that's just normal. There's stuff I hate in my job. That's why I tell my employees, I'm going to email for me, email for me. Keep going. That's why I personally tell my employees, I'm also going to let you pick 15% of your job to do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be directly related if you're building a skill. You want to go learn video editing? Go learn video editing, right? And somehow it'll relate back. So, But they're, they're one the night before. And if you can look back at a day and said, I did these three things, that's good. So I work, win the night before, win the day the night before, write down the things that will make you feel like you accomplished something. Because I've been on the other side of that. Where I just woke up and I had a plate full of calls. I got on a call and I worked for five hours, six hours straight of calls. And I got off and then I did some other work and nine hour days are gone. And I, I asked myself, what did I do today? And I couldn't answer it. And when I couldn't answer it, I actually lose a lot of the gusto. I'm an emotion guy and that's why I work the hours I do. But I'll tell you this. If you give me a 20 hour work week and I hate it, I'll give you 20 hours of email. It'll feel like 80. You give me an 80 hour work week and I love it, it'll feel like 20. So start figuring out a way to make 80 feel like 20. You mentioned the fact you don't want to get stuck on a a meeting that just kills an hour of your day. I'm sure many people are listening, but they're thinking, oh yeah, but this is coming top down. They expect me to be there, blah, blah, blah. How do you address that so you can casually remove yourself from what you feel to be a wasteful meeting? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of techniques. They're not all foolproof. Some of them are going to depend on your hierarchy or how long you've been somewhere or what your bosses are like, right? And this is what I talked about. You have culture until you don't have culture. When I took over this organization about two and a half years ago, I have to tell you, there were like six hours of status calls every week. So I just kind of jumped in on the calls and listened. And all people did was tell what the status was. Ironic. There was no discussion, just reading off, right? And so that was where I changed that culture. Now that I was the leader of that, where we actually go and have status and Trello boards and Slack. And if we're going to have a call, it's because we've got something that's not in the right status and we've got to figure out ways to solution around it. That's number one. Number two is, unless it's like in all hands, which I think are really important, um, not just because they're from my boss, but they really, you learn all kinds of great things in those all hands. But some folks have these repeating calls that have 140 people on them or 38 people on them. If you're going to have a call that you're joining with 38 to 140 people on them, it's like where there's smoke, there's fire. You're probably not going to get a lot of value out of that particular call. And then in other areas, so you have to decide what calls are good, what calls are not. And then I'm hoping that you work for uh, a leader. I always say, pick the boss, not the job. That understands that it's not about you know, calls, calls, calls. You need think time. You need two to three hours of think time a day. And so hopefully you can have that communication with your leaders or your boss saying, can we make these days calls or can we get a better culture around calls and those types of things? I think those are like three of probably four or five tips. But if you take one of those three and get started with that, you'll be doing well. There was a tweet, you request people to push for an understanding of AI whether it's really AI or sophisticated if-then-else decision trees. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I kind of hit on that today, actually. I, don't, like, I think I came across one too many vendors 
or one too many IBMers or one too many competitors trying to tell me that certain stuff's AI and it's not AI. And if you haven't seen the tweet, I don't know if you've ever watched um, Scooby-Doo, the kids, you know, find the ghost and they pull the cap off the ghost or the, the sheet and it's a human and then underneath it. And that's what this is, right? It says AI and you pull it. It's just an if-else statement. I think a big thing coming down the pipe in AI, you know, we could talk about, you know, NLP, I think Project Debater is huge at IBM. I think the whole area around natural language understanding and processing these transformer uh, algorithms like GPT-3 and BERT, those things are amazing. But a big thing coming down the pipe in AI hits on what I was getting at. And I call it XAI, explainable AI. And I think that we have to have this notion of algorithmic accountability. There is so much focus on building AI and what is the performance. And of course, in the AI world, performance means the accuracy, right? It doesn't mean how fast, it's accuracy. So you talk about performance of algorithms and you talk about how many algorithms I build. And we're starting to get into this whole ethics bit and explainability of AI. And, you know, IBM has been behind the uh, 360 toolkit, has a lot of explainability stuff in there. I think that's amazing. Uh, there is more road to run here. And I think transparency on the AI is critical. Not only why did it make a decision and how it's making a decision, but what is the data that's coming in? And now I want to see it in action. And... There is no place bigger than this than uh, what I call snake oil AI, where predicting outcomes of humans uh, based on you know features that they're pulling in. That is a dangerous place in AI right now. So that's what that was about. Better explainability. And as leaders, you better understand AI enough to ask the questions of the people that are building them. Otherwise, they turn into data science projects. Very good. Very good. I like it. All right. See, we had no agenda and we could keep going. Before I end, quick game. Would you rather? I got four questions for you. And what this is, is you (laughs) got to pick one side or the other. All right, folks. I had no idea this was coming and I don't know what the questions are. And when Al's on the mic, you definitely don't know what the questions are. But (laughs) easy, 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 except for the last one. But the last one's more like a question. You got to answer. All right. Beer or whiskey? Beer. Here, okay. No Canadian whiskey, huh? All right, I got it. All right, book or podcast? Probably a book. All right. Uh, Are you more productive now with no travel or before with travel? Before with travel. Why is that? I got to stop there real quick. Just (laughs) look. You know, I'll say definitely before with travel when you get on a plane and there was no Wi-Fi on the plane because I had think time, right? But now uh, more people want meetings, you know, kids home, you know, my wife's home, I'm here. I kind of just settle in and I guess I feel like I'm less productive. You know what it is? Uh, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Maybe I was busier <laughs> than running to an airport, so I had to get stuff done. But I do find myself a little bit less productive. And some of that, with all respect, could be COVID kind of hunkering down on me. I'll be honest. I'm a upbeat guy, but... Even COVID's got me a little bit down. I missed some stuff, and maybe that's hit my productivity. I'm with you. All right, here's a question. This is it. Now, you got to pick one. What is the most single important rung of the ladder for AI? Well, I think at the end of the day, it has to be infused. So you could collect data, govern, organize your data. You could put algorithms together. 
But if that stuff never makes it to help the business, then all you have is a bunch of data science projects. So infusing AI with confidence across the enterprise is what will transform it. That goes back to culture. Culture is a part of that infuse rung. We talk about it in the book. And I guess the example of where it didn't work is in the Hadoop era. I can't tell you how many banks I talked to created a day lake. Everyone was on Hadoop and it provided no value. So you created Hadoop, you you collected the data, you organized the data, you put analytics, but it didn't find its way into the business processes around the enterprise. And there's the other thing I'll tell you why Infuse matters is Infuse doesn't just mean everyone says, hey, we added AI on top of our existing process. No, you need to break apart the monolith and rebuild your business processes with AI as a first class citizen behind them. So it's not just adding AI on top of existing process, it's reimagining and rethinking those. And for that reason, Infuse is the most important run. Good. All right. Thank Paul, thank you so much for being on here. I knew it would be great. You've lived up to the expectations. I got to have you back on in the future again. We'll keep doing this because I just enjoy uh, riffing with you. Thank you for that. Thank you. I got to tell you, it's a privilege uh, to be here and it's a privilege to have your listeners listen to some of my thoughts and and I uh, look forward to it again, if you'll help. So for you listeners out there, we will put some of the references in the show notes. And until next time, I'll see you on the podcast. Be good. Be well. Later. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.